I'm Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries and host of the Cozy Corner Podcast. Joining me today from Killer Nashville is fellow Silver Falchion finalist, Ellie Chandler, author of the Art Deco Mysteries. Her third Art Deco novel, The Pearl Dagger, went on sale August 27th, and she's hosting a speakeasy-themed launch party on September 10th in New York City to benefit the LaGuardia Arts High School Library. Welcome, Lori. Hello! It's so nice to be here, Alexia. Thank you for having me. Your Art Deco series is set in 1930s New York. How did you choose the 1930s as a time period? I have always been a huge reader of historic uh, mysteries and thrillers, and I love to study history and whatnot. But the main reason I chose the 30s was um, I moved to New York City shortly after 9-11, and I was very struck by the fact that the city was in this very hurting, very difficult, dark time. Yet there was a lot of art and camaraderie and warmth and humor and at the same time, I picked up a biography of Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, who was the 99th mayor of New York, three-term mayor, all during the 30s. And I was absolutely struck by the similarities between what I was living through in New York currently um, and the 1930s. And I saw this other side to the 30s that I felt was an undertold side of that era. We usually are just, it's full of the you know, the soup lines and the Depression era, the shanty towns, but there was so much more going on. The humor, the vitality of Mayor Fiorello Guardia and the humor that he had was amazing. And the art and architecture, I felt like, you know, we had these two short decades between the world wars and yet it was full of the Depression, Prohibition. I mean, you couldn't pile more on on those people, yet the art deco that came out of that era and the architecture, the, the buildings that we love, like the Chrysler building, Empire State building, Radio City Music Hall, were so poignant and beautiful that I was like, I want to tell that side of the story. So that's how I picked the era. Speaking of Marilyn LaGuardia, who's obviously a real person, we've all been through LaGuardia Airport at least once in our lives, uh, he is a major character in your novels. So what were some of the challenges of fictionalizing a historical figure? Um, it was really, it was fun to work with because my main goal was to stay true to the spirit of who he was. So I, and I definitely stay true to all of his physical characteristics and, and, and whatnot, but I feel like the story in itself is an embodiment of his spirit and the effect he had on the city. Uh, but the challenges are tricky. In fact, the funniest challenge, most difficult challenge is that he was so outrageous and so many Points. And I put a lot of actual real moments that happened in history in my books, and they're rather unbelievable. So I've had readers that are like, "Are you? did he really do that? And I'm like, yeah, you have to read my author notes because I, I always tell you like what's real, what was fictitious. And I can just say right now, if, if it's more incredible involving him, he probably did it in real life. <laughs> so the with the turnstile really happened? Oh, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. He really did. He also, he had all these like funny little moments too. Like he hated meetings. <laughs> so in real life, but I do have this in the book, he cuts off the front one inch of the legs of his office chair. So when anybody comes in for a meeting, they're slowly slipping off the chair and incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable. He really did that. So I put that in there. Lane catches him doing it. She's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but you know, it sounds like something I made up, but yeah. That really, all that stuff happened. <laughs> so speaking of things that really happened, 
Um, you do include a lot of uh, period details, such as penicillin being in development but not available. See Marilyn Gordia altering his office furniture. Mm -hmm. um, Orson Welles having done an adaptation of Macbeth called Voodoo Macbeth, a dance step called The Lift Flip. So how do you balance including enough real historic detail to make the reader feel as if they're in 1930s New York without including so much that it ends up sounding like a book? It's a great question. Um, I, you know, anybody who writes history who enjoys it, it is, that's the tricky part. And I feel like um, you can put it in and then I tend to read it out loud. And especially if there's big sections, I like to just put it in here and there, either if it's in dialogue or just in passing and a little goes a long way. And I think that's one way um, if you just sort of scatter things about like that, it does help you a lot. If you put um, even just period details of what they are dressed like and whatnot, it helps helps the reader's imagination get immersed, you know, into that setting. But I think that my best thing is if I start reading out loud, and even though I might be geeking out about this great history, I try to be really harsh with myself of like, is it taking you out of the story though? You know, is it a hindrance or is it helping paint the canvas? And I try to, that helps me the most. Yeah. Now, York in the 1930s is very different from New York now. So tell us about the research that you did to get the history right. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of the spirit is the same, but there's a lot that was different. I went to the Transit Museum and was looking at, like, the subway cars. The subway cars actually were similar, but no air conditioning, of course, but they actually had open ceiling fans in the top. So there's all these little details I could add on, but they also had a lot more elevated trains than we do now. Um, so even the transportation was different. I also did a lot. I've taken tours of City Hall. I've looked at, there's a couple of subway um entrances uh, that we don't use anymore, but that are secret ones that you can still see from the trains. I've done all that. Um, I even went to, to get a feel for it, I've been to a lot of the speakeasies that are in New York, and they had one uh, that I really loved that you actually had to dress up in, in the era to be allowed in. And oh my gosh, it was like um, midnight in Paris. It was like, it was like walking back into time. You know, you walk in the doors and everyone was dressed from the era, was holding like pro white coffee mugs with their cocktails in it and a live band and it was those events that I felt like gave you a real feel for the time but yeah I've done a lot of research online at libraries I've gone to a lot of museums to do that oh another thing is I found books that were from that time period um, my favorite one was by Holbert Footner it's called New York City of Cities and it's a tour guide book, but very lyrical. And he goes to places that are tourist places, but also not tourist places. So that was gold because it was not written with the hindsight of our current day, but in the moment, World War II has not come yet. And um, he even did little things like I have a couple scenes in the police precinct and he visits the police precinct and he sees the lineup where the detectives get to see their guys that they've arrested and decide what to do with them. And they basically had like an open mic time and the savvier criminals knew that if they could kind of get a laugh out of the detectives, they might go a little bit lighter on them. I'm like, yeah, that, well, I think that happens now. No. So, so yeah, those are all my different ways. And 1930s London also plays a role in the Pearl Dagger. So how did you research London of almost a hundred years ago? Yeah, you know, that was trickier. I've been to London, so and I've been to a bunch of the Art Deco places that were like that. Um, I really did a lot of research about, like, I take them over on the Queen Mary, so I did a lot of research about what that looked like, um, what was really around then. I still had to look up things like all their... Um, 
oh, what their postal boxes looked like and all these little things in the cars. And um, it, it was it involved a lot of research just to make sure the detail was accurate enough. But again, you don't have to put in so much that um, it takes the reader out of the story. But yeah, I tried to look up a lot of information about what was really true to the to the time. And when you were reading books written in that area, did you read uh, detective fiction written in that er in that era? Um, I did more nonfiction, more to get a certain feel of the time versus the voice of the time. And also, you know, one of the things that I've done with this is I feel like the 30s is a little more modern than what we would think. Um, the women were, women were having a really uh, high effect on the workforce, which I thought came more like when Rosie the Riveter happened, when, you know, when it was World War II. But really there was almost this, they almost had more prominence in the 30s than they did in the 50s. I think things backslid. And I wanted to show that modern aspect. You know, even in the 20s, it was the modern woman. And there's a mural um, by Thomas Hart Benton where he has even a picture of, it's called The New Woman. And, and she's standing on the subway um, in her work outfit and the men are sitting down. And I wanted to show that modern part. I really wanted to show that modern part. And so... I add the historic detail, but I also have, I want to show that modern aspect that is very similar to today. So I have some of my speech patterns and, um, and how Lane acts might seem a little more modern than what it was, but it's actually true. Yeah. And did you also, uh, did you watch the movies from that era or listen to the music from the era? Definitely. And I, I, I do all of that. And I even have Lane's a big reader, as am I. So she reads a lot of the current books that were out, including Gone with the Wind had just come out. And it was it was uh, it was keyed up as a romance novel at the time. And um, I love to read that. So I read all those books that she reads. She's going to read in the next one out of Africa had just come out. And Sinclair Lewis's really fascinating book. It can happen here. Um, highly recommend reading that with our current political culture. Um, yeah, I've done that. And, uh, and also the arts are such an important part of the story that I listen to a lot of the music, especially that was there because they go dancing and all that. So I like to see and listen to that music, the jazz that's there, the swing dancing, I, all that. I, yeah, I try to listen to it all. And are you personally a fan of Art Deco style? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> I love living in New York City. You know, you stumble upon that all the time. I was coming out of the um, Grand Central Station once, just on my way to an appointment, and the main exit that I usually take out of there was shut down. So, you know, you just keep following the detour. And I popped into this building that I have never been in before, but it was so Art Deco, so beautiful. It reminded me of the Chrysler building on the inside, the chandeliers, the brass elevator doors, just absolutely stunning. It turned out to be the Channon building, which I had never been in before. And the beauty, the beauty of it is just ridiculous. But I love that about the city. And that that spontaneity of, of things happening like that without even trying is another thing I try to get across in my books because it's really true. And I hear I stumbled upon this beautiful Art Deco. And even the people in the hallways were like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is amazing. So, yeah, I love all of it. I think it's beautiful. And even the people, even people who aren't artsy, if you say Art Deco, they know what that means. And I find that fascinating. It's just such a short era, yet it had so much impact on the world. And what would you choose as your favorite example of Art Deco architecture in New York? Yeah, I love the Chrysler building. It's my favorite. In fact, we're coming up to the 90th anniversary on it. And um, 
I'm going to be working on book four, and that whole book takes place in the Chrysler building. And they used to have a club called the Cloud Club, where all the businessmen held court, men only. And it was, you know, high up in the um, in the building, but it's now uh, abandoned. And I really want someone to refurbish that because it's it was incredible. But yeah, I love that building. There's something special about it, and Lane really likes it. And you know, both that building and the Empire State Building, you know, they were star- Started after the crash in 29. They started and broke ground in like 30, 31-ish. And um, it really stood for so much more. On the day that the crash happened, the city went silent and all the building stopped. And, and I've read articles <clears throat> where they talk about the eerie silence of that day. And the builders, of, um, even our Rockefeller Center, uh, he, had, he was building at that same time period, 30 and his main partner uh, got out of the deal. And instead of just forgetting it, he and Johnny Rockefeller had, um, he funded it himself. And that building alone provided 75,000 jobs to the city. And it made all of, all of, when that happened, those buildings, the, the life came back to the city. You heard the hammers and the jackhammers and the riveters and all that. And it, it literally brought life back to the city. And also talk about how important <clears throat> art is in your novel. So who are some of your favorite 1930s era artists? Well, I really like uh, Thomas Hart Benton, um, and he's actually going to come up in another novel. There's a wonderful mural of his in the Met, and I do a little tour on that. And um, it's just, it's really a fascinating take on America. It's called America Today, and it has all these different panels of um, his ideas of these different parts of the country, from the Deep South to the Midwest to out West to the cities. And um, one of his students is Jackson, was Jackson Pollock. And even from the Federal Works Project, um, de Kooning and um, Jackson Pollock, they were all working with that. If we hadn't had the Federal Works Project, I don't know if we would have had them wow. going on today. So there are a lot of wonderful artists that came up during that time period. And what's your favorite cocktail from that time period? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I really love a sidecar. And then um, Lane's favorite is Bad Romance. And you can't Google Bad Romance cocktail because you get this horrible thing by Lady Gaga. But <laughs> her, her, her Bad Romance cocktail, you have to go to my website to find it. <laughs> but it has had um, champagne and it had tequila and lime juice and cranberry. It's lethal, but really good. <laughs> Speaking of your, your novels again, um, you use several different points of view in, in mm-hmm. The Pearl Dagger. Uh, you use first person for Lane, um, third person for Finn, and several other characters. So what challenges do you face in writing in so many different points of view to get the voice of so many different characters? That's a great question. Um, the majority of the book is first person through Lane's perspective. So the vast majority of chapters are from her but I found there have been a few authors over the years that um, they would have like maybe one chapter where suddenly you were in the mind of the villain. And that was captivating to me because I like I love first person and the immersive quality of that. And I that was an intentional choice on mine and my editor's part to do it first person because I wanted there's something about reading first person that sort of lets you be in their place, too 
versus uh, an omniscient narrator that's looking on a scene. If you're reading I, you tend to place yourself in it, even if you're not like Lane. And I love that aspect. But I wanted to show, even that thrillers allow you to see different villains or different aspects. And uh, that was fun as a writer just to even play with, to have a few chapters where you're writing third person and um, maybe getting a little insight. And in this one, it is from... um, it's a lot about Ben facing the ghosts of his past and his wretched family. And um, I really wanted a couple chapters that came from his perspective. But I felt like it was better to do that third person. It helped you understand the chapters better. So as soon as you saw I again, you knew it was Lane. You know, and I felt like it um, It was refreshing, though, too. You know, I love first person, but it was nice to get a variety. And so to have a chapter come along, you're like, ooh, what's this villain? Or ooh, this is, you know, and, or you get to see how Finn sees Lane. Um, and how what he appreciates about her, that's fun to work with. Did you find it difficult to not only show things from Finn's point of view and Lane's point of view, but also keep it in the 1930s point of view? Yeah, I mean, it. you always have to keep that in mind. And it's one of those things that I think when you're writing that the writing itself is immersive and it it can be hard when you're, you know, you're still doing real life. You know, I'm still a parent. I still have another job. I'm still, and, um, it's, it's tricky to do, to do that. But also now I know my character so well that it feels more natural than it might have earlier on where it's not as difficult because now I feel like I know them. I feel like, like, you know, when I went to one of those speakeasies recently, I'm like, I feel like my characters are going to walk around the corner, you know? And so that, I think over time, when you write a series, that does become a little easier. And if readers would like to get to know your characters as, as or at least almost as well as you know them, where could they buy The Pearl Dagger and your other Art Deco mysteries? Oh, you can find any of your favorite booksellers. Um, if you go to lachandler.com, my website, I have all my books on there, and I have all the different tags on there from Barnes & Noble to independent booksellers to um, Amazon, of course. And um, But lachandler.com is probably the easiest way to, to find them. And... Besides LHandler.com, uh, where else on social media can uh, readers find you and where can they see pictures of your fabulous red shoe collection? <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Pinterest, and it's all under just L.A. Chandler. And um, yes, Lane wears red <laughs> shoes, and actually, Lexi and I are, have gone to conferences together before, but I always wear red shoes um, when I go to conferences so that I can, you know, people can find me easier, and it's a fun branding thing. And I recently found out if if I don't wear red shoes, I get yelled at. So, <laughs> yeah, if you see on, Instagram, on any social media, Art Deco New York or red shoes, that's me. <laughs> well, I'm truly not going to yell at you for joining me today in the <laughs> Corner. Uh, thank you very much, Lori. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alexia. And once again, this has been Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries, with L.A. Chandler, author of the Art Deco Mysteries from Kensington, Book 3, The Pearl Dagger, is on sale wherever fine books are sold. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, goodbye.